3: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1. Today's episode, Rebirth.
0: When I left, I had no plan of being gone this long. I just sort of had this sense that the world was so much bigger than like our little corner of it really.
1: This is Emily Richmond. For the past four years she's been sailing around the world on a tiny boat by herself. During that time she's been to a dozen countries on four continents and she's docked at countless ports. I spoke with her via Skype on her last night in Borneo where she was hiding out from the rain before setting sail again the next morning.
0: I tend to stay in places like at least a month or two. So I've like had all these different boyfriends in different places, like, you know, boyfriends named like turtle eyes and named after like spirit guides and stuff like that. And you, that becomes your life when you're there. Like you, you hunt for your food or you you dive and spearfish and ride horses. And like, I mean, literally from month to month, everything about your life changes.
1: Speaking to Emily, you get the sense that in these past few years, she has lived dozens and dozens of lives. With each port, she's offered a chance to start fresh, to be reborn onto the shores of a land where no one knows her. But there was one place Emily landed where her rebirth transcended the myth of the traveler and suddenly became something more literal. While sailing around Papua New Guinea, Emily stumbled upon a cargo cult. A cargo cult is a religious movement which arises in certain isolated tribal societies. After having sudden contact with modern technology, these groups form, believing cargo to be bestowed from a supernatural source. And when Emily arrived at the shores of this particular tribe, she was greeted by a huge welcoming ceremony
0: people were coming out to meet in the road putting these sort of floral necklaces with you know really large shells shells around my neck and they have this sort of like spiritual leader who I guess had like had visions that I was coming before I got there and so this woman the spiritual leader she grabbed me and was like wrestling me to the ground and they were shoving all this this money at me and like I had no idea what was going on at the time but like the next day they explained to me the entire doctrine which is that According to them, when they die, they will be reborn with white skin. They think that their, their ordinary skin is sort of like peeled away and underneath they have white skin. So they said when you arrive in the village, the first person in years with white skin, of course, immediately they're thinking, this is our ancestor. This is our ancestor returned to sort of like bring on the great change, to to bring us wealth, to bring us prosperity.
1: Did so? Did you consider just embracing it at a certain point, just settling into this great new life of being worshipped? Not at all.
0: No, they just they're just putting all their hopes in you, really. You know, like they're hoping that, you know, like these people are are so impoverished. Like you know, at certain years, if the crops don't come up, they've got very little food, and to have somebody place all of their like hopes and expectations on you, God, that's an enormous burden especially if you've got no prospect of actually delivering on it. We think
1: of rebirth as a fresh new start, but whether you're entering the world for the first time or the second time, you're always born into the expectations of the people that surround you. Emily only stayed with the tribe a few days before she moved on once again, recommencing her cycle of reinvention, of arrival, and departure.
0: It's always difficult to leave. Um, like, I'm leaving right now, and right before you called, like, there's, like, a stream of people coming by to say goodbyes. Yeah, it's always hard, you know? Like, you don't know when you're gonna see people again, or if you're ever gonna see them again. And mixed with, like, the sort of emotional, like, impact of going out to see you, where everything is completely unknown, everything's variable, like, it's a huge risk to sort of, like, toss off your dock lines and go out into the unknown.
3: Hi, my name is Steve Callahan and 1982, I was lost at sea for two and a half months.
1: Steve Callahan also found rebirth at sea, but only after facing death. When he was a young man, Not yet 30, Steve's marriage fell apart, and he was adrift. Fed up with the pressures and disappointments of human connection, he fled across the Atlantic in a small sailboat in search of freedom and adventure. After a few months sailing around Europe and the western coast of Africa, Steve headed out into open waters once more for his return journey home.
3: I sailed out about uh, a week or so, and was having a pretty decent time of it, actually, uh, although the weather was getting pretty rough. And uh, the night of February 4th, 1982, something hit the side of the boat at night. I always presumed it was a whale, but it could have been a shark or some big creature, maybe a sea monster, who knows. Uh, there's a big bam in the side of the boat, and a lot of water rushed in, and sinking the boat very, very quickly. Uh, it was filling up with water. I leapt up, and grabbed all my emergency gear, got up on the deck and inflated the life raft and bailed out just before morning and went drifting off with the winds and the currents. Frankly, I thought my chances of survival were almost nil, because I was pretty much dead smack in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which meant that I was weeks away from the shipping lanes even, where I would have my first real chance of getting picked up, and I had nowhere near enough water in order to get that far. So, there were times where I felt in my most desperate moments that, well, here I am, I'm going to die, and nobody's ever going to know what happened to me. So it was a really, really depressing time, and it lasted about two weeks, which was the period of time it took me to learn how to produce water, catch food, you know, get familiar with the raft, and slowly that evolves into basically living like an aquatic caveman. I live primarily off of a species called Dorado or Dorad, because a school started forming around the raft within a few days. They use the raft as a kind of a rendezvous point, and they proved to be very smart and capable. The spear gun that I used to catch the fish was a really small spear gun, almost a a bit of a toy. And it wasn't really made for catching these large fish. And they would pull the, the shaft of the spear out and break it. So every time I'd put it back together and made it a little bit better, was a great day. Uh, you know, basically the entire experience of survival is like life, but in extremes. The lows are incredibly low and the highs are incredibly high. You know, you have a little failure that in normal life wouldn't make any difference, but it could kill you out, out there. So it's, it's really depressing. On the other hand, producing in just a little bit of water, just enough to drink, say, or something like that, it was this huge moment of elation so it's it's very volatile emotionally because there's no there's no backup anything can go wrong and kill you at any moment but um there were many things i saw that were beautiful and in fact there's a passage in the little log that i kept i you know i scribbled on on these bits of paper and it was after some particularly spectacular night, you know, amazing stars, and looking out and seeing all the Dorado around the raft, like little silver platters hovering under the raft, because, you know, there's all this bioluminescence in the, in the ocean. Anything that goes through it creates all these, like, billions of teeny, teeny fireflies, and just amazing stuff. And I wrote, you know, well, this is a view of heaven from a seat in hell. It was not a pleasant place to be. It was a horrible place to be, but there were really amazing things that I witnessed through going through it.
1: You, you, you wrote in your, in your log at sea, I have lost all but my past, my friends, and of course the shirt off my back. Ho, ho, will I make it? I don't know was there was there anything in in a in a kind of perverse way liberating about having lost everything all of your possessions when when your when your ship went down
3: you know when you lose everything and your life is really on the edge you're given an incredible gift, which is a clarity about what really is important in life, and it really clarified for me all my weaknesses. Uh, At 30 years old, I was actually physically in pretty decent shape, as good as I could be, but my weaknesses really were in dealing with people and humanity. I was very, very self-protective and It was kind of a more of a self-centered existence, and it took going through that experience to really figure out that I needed people a lot more than I thought I did, that I was no sea creature, that somehow I had to come back and make a more meaningful life where relationships and people were a bigger part of it than they had been. after two and a half months I did actually pilot my way across the Atlantic and I ended up about 60 miles south of where initially I was headed and when I first landed I was I was born it was like literally being reborn like a baby in terms of you know colors and sounds and things were like I'd experienced them for the first time and you know it's like all my senses were stuck into an electric socket or something or other it was just like everything was highlighted but Then uh, I also was very naive again about people. I had over-romanticized people. And I guess over the years, what I've come to grips with is that despite the fact that we can be selfish and all these things, there's also our capacity to have compassion and be generous and be kind. And that really is something that has changed my life a great deal. I have healthier relationships and there's a bit more feeling of connection to other people and purpose in life.
1: Think of
2: your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it?
4: If I had the choice, I would choose to be a reborn as a turtle as it floats through the depths of deep, soft water.
1: Oh, yeah? Is that is That's what you'd like to be reborn as, uh, as a turtle?
4: Well, first of all, if I was reincarnated into a dragonfly, I wouldn't find that very fun because they only live two days and then, like, oh, I have to die now again. <laughs> but... Yeah. A turtle can live over 200 years.
1: So it's about quantity as much as quality for you.
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, l- let me um, let me ask you this. Would you rather go to some beautiful afterlife or would you rather be reborn and live different lives over and over and over again forever?
4: I'd choose to be reincarnated because I think then you could see all the different facets of life from a different point of view. If the beautiful, if the heavenly ha- afterlife is sitting on a cloud all day and eating grapes and like and looking like Caesar, uh, I don't really feel like it.
1: You think it would be boring?
4: Yeah, I seriously find no appeal to being dead.
1: So, do you think that's why people like the idea of reincarnation because they get to avoid death?
4: Well, partly that, but. I also think that people want the idea of a second chance.
1: How do you mean?
4: Like, who knows what mistakes you made or if you're a selfish person or if you're a bad person or if you're mean or a bully or something like that. And it's super nice to have a chance to fix that. And if in my next life, I could change anything I wanted to. I'd want to be a better sister.
1: Oh, yeah? How so?
4: Well, I don't know if, if you know but, like, sisters and brothers just kind of fight. And I sometimes just say to myself, I don't really need to be exceedingly generous with my sister because she's your sister and you see her every day.
1: And yeah.
4: I don't think that's very nice. And who knows? I mean... If my sister died today or tomorrow,
1: God forbid then
4: I would be sad that I hadn't been nice to her before that
1: what What keeps you from doing that now, like just being nice here to your sister now in the, in this life?
4: Well, it's kinda it's kind of difficult to imagine that someone could completely start over because if you've lived the same way for. Uh, who knows how many years it, it's, it's difficult to change the way you were so it just seems so much easier to wait till your next life
0: mm-hmm.
4: but for all we know we only get one chance maybe there is no rebirth maybe there's just birth and we have to make do with that
1: After a long, terrible struggle in their cave near the clearing in the trees, Grubb and Thack held their newborn. She had a hairy, protruding forehead like her father, Grubb, and good, strong lungs like her mother, Thack. Grubb chewed through the cord that connected the baby to Thack, and as he did, he thought, How do these bloody, screaming things get into a woman's belly? Later that night, by the fire, Grub tried to remember where he was before he came out of his mother's belly. Grub could remember yesterday and the day before that, all the way back to a time when Tiny Grub was sitting on a rock watching a furry animal flee the thwacks of his club, his first memory of being alive. But before that, nothing. He thought and thought and trying to think so hard hurt his head, and still nothing came. He asked others where they were before they came out, but no one could remember. They told stories, though. There is a place behind the large hills, said Ak, where the babies are stacked before they come. Babies come from great snake, said Gar. Woman meet snake in dreams, Gar spent most of his time falling from trees, and Ak walked around with three fingers in his mouth. Grub did not trust either of them. Grub needed to know the secret because he wanted to have more babies. His neighbor, Ruck, had about 10. Atok, Par, Gog, Ta, Ruck Jr., Fog. There were so many he couldn't keep track. They were hardy children, too. One two-year-old had a beard almost as thick as Grubb's. And altogether, these mighty children raced up and down Grubb's rock pile, stealing rocks. And even though he shook his great stick, he could not stop them. Grubb saw that more babies was better, and he wanted as many as Ruck. Many more little hymns and hers to scatter around and steal rocks for him. But he was stuck at just one. Why was he stuck? Faxaw saw Grub was sad, and she did not want him to be sad. She wanted him to be happy for one baby, which was something, not nothing. She told him to go ahead and give the baby a name. Gag, Grub said. Gag was his mother's name. Or maybe his father's. He was not sure. He'd not seen either in a long time. Gag and other Gag had both died long, long ago. While gathering fruit, they had been stepped on by mammoths. The days passed and Grubb thought about the problem of how to make more babies all the time. He made offerings, throwing rocks and melon rinds at the moon. If he could only hit it, he'd think, maybe he could shake the moon loose of its babies. It was possible. Anything was. After he made his offerings, he returned to Thak and put his arms around her waist to see if her belly was getting bigger. He kept his hands around her all night, but could feel no growth. Thak did not want Grub to be sad. So every time there was a rumble in her stomach she thought might mean a baby had come, She would run to tell him. She'd point at her middle and he would lay her on the ground, placing his cheek to her stomach and listening for hours. But it was never a baby. It was always just frogs. Frogs gave Thack indigestion. Was it connected to the lightning somehow? The forms he saw in the clouds? The plants Thack ate? Should he dance in the big fire? Scream at the big tree? The medium tree? Beg old fat man in the sky. Make Thack squat over the fire while he cooked a fish. Could he get a baby in him? He would not ever seen a baby in a man, but maybe he could be the first. Did the ostrich dance make a baby? The alligator dance? Licking trees? Licking belly? He sometimes dreamed of babies. Maybe he had to pluck one out of his dreams and stick it into Thack's belly, but he always woke up before he could. Was it mangoes? His neighbor, Ruck, ate a lot of them, the pits piled high outside his cave door. Grub tried it and ate so many he made himself ill. He threw up and rubbed the mango that came out onto Thack's stomach. One is good, said Thack. One not good. Said Grub. How could one be good when Ruck had ten? After a useless day of dancing, screaming, and throwing things at the sky, Grub came home to the cave. It was getting dark, and Grub was sad. Thak did not want him to be sad. She wore her good summer warthog pelt to cheer him up. It gave Grub ideas. Thok Thok? he asked, hopefully. Thok Thok, answered Thak. They laid themselves down upon the earth, and Thak took Grub into her arms and offered him the comfort of warm, hidden places. The next morning, Grub would do all his dances, make all his offerings, and nine and a half months later, when the new baby finally did come, Grubb knew for sure that of everything he tried, it was the alligator dance that had been the secret all along. He could tell by the baby's sharp teeth. And so every morning he would repeat the dance, hoping for Thack's stomach to rise once more. He would dance all day, and sometimes the dancing was good, and sometimes it was not. And when it was not... When he was sick and tired and frustrated from trying so hard and not succeeding, when there was nothing else left, he would return home where there was Thak, who did not want him to feel sad, and so offered Thok Thok, And sometimes Thok Thok lasted well into the night.
2: I'm a little, uh, I, I, I was walking down St. Catherine Street. I just got back in and, I, and I, I'm a little overwhelmed. I, I, I just saw Lauren Green outside. Great Canadian actor walking down L- St. Catherine Street. Lauren I, Green. I, yeah. I'm, I, I don't really see celebrities every day. I'm a little overwhelmed.
1: Howard, Lauren Green from Bonanza.
2: Yeah. How many Lauren Greens are there? Lauren Green. Beautiful mane of white hair walking down the street. I The only person that recognized him. I waved. He waved back. He was very respectful. I gave him his elbow room. The guy's earned it, because he knew that I knew he was Lauren Green, and of course he knew that he was Lauren Green, and I knew that he knew he was Lauren Green because he was Lauren Green. Great. He looked great.
1: Lauren Green, Howard, who died in in the late '80s. Well, he died. He died like
2: you know, like a celebrity death, like like Johnny Carson's dead or you know, Janis Joplin's dead or whatever.
1: Like, they're the dead, Howard.
2: They're dead, but they're celebrity dead. It's not the same thing. It's not like a normal mortal human being who dies and. It's buried and stuff. Well,
1: Howard, I, haven't, I mean, they're, they're just as mortal as, as you were. Haven't you heard the expression, celebrities, they're just like you and me? That encompasses the fact that they die. They're of flesh and blood. So
2: you're saying to me that, like, Elvis is dead and, and Michael Jackson's dead and Tupac and Elvis, all of those people are dead? They are very much
1: dead, yes.
2: <laughs> you're just so naive. I, don't know I, you're I am.
1: You. These are celebrities.
2: They don't die like normal people. They need to find a way to reintegrate into society so there's a huge mechanism involved to fake their death. It's a ruthless world, you know, the celebrity world. I mean, it's just nonstop action. They have no privacy, you know.
1: So you think, so all these celebrities, they've all faked their deaths? The vast majority. Mm-hmm. When you hear the little
2: murmurs of so-and-so is still alive, and, you know, John Lennon's still alive and Paul McCartney's still alive and all that kind of Paul stuff. Paul McCartney is alive. No, see, that's the irony. Paul McCartney's actually dead and John Lennon wears Paul McCartney's face. And
1: where, where do you get this from?
2: You never heard, like, the quote people say, like, you know, so-and-so is dead, but they live on through their music.
1: Yeah, that's an expression. that mean, that's It's figurative. I mean, it means that, you know, no. we continue to enjoy their art. No, they want you to think that it's figurative, but it's really, it's literal. No, I think, Howard, it's art, you know, makes us, you know, immortal. And that's the
2: worst kind of immortality I can imagine, just to have your stuff resonate through the years. What does that mean? To be actually immortal, that's the goal. You know, the day after your alleged burial, you sit down. You have a big steak dinner, followed by a big fat cigar.
1: Okay, so then by your logic, if I'm a bit of a celebrity because of, you know, the radio show, that would that would make me immortal also.
2: What? No, no. You're going to die, die, and it's going to be like early, you know, like premature style. Uh-huh. You're not going to live forever, nor will your work. Okay. How are you going to be a celebrity? From what? Maybe you committed some kind of unpardonable crime or something, some horrible, awful crime. Kind of be like a
1: celebrity. On Wiretap today, you heard Nelika Dager, Howard Chakowitz, and at the beginning of the show, you heard Emily Richmond, whose journey can be followed at bobbyroundstheworld.com. You also heard Steve Callahan, author of Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea. Wiretap is produced by Mira Birdwin-Tonic, Crystal Duhaime, and me, Jonathan Goldstein.